Welcome to the Musea Podcast. This is episode number 53, and I am Michael Howard, the founder and CEO of Musea. Hope everybody's doing well out there. Um, things are cooking over here. we got lots of stuff going on, so I'm going to go over a couple announcements real quick before we get on to uh, this episode. Big announcement we had last week was we're starting a brand new division of Musea called Musea Outpost. And so this is a division where we help you with uh, post-processing and production of your photo shoots. So if you need help blogging, uh, social media, submitting weddings to uh, publications or blogs, uh, editing your pictures, you know, Lightroom, uh, doing album design, if you need help with that, um, we can do all those things for you to take some of the load off your plate so that it frees you up to... Um, you know, be the vision caster and leader for uh, your photo studio. And uh, so a lot of us, I know, get so bogged down with wearing 20 different hats, and uh, this division of Musea is designed uh, to help you uh, maybe wear only like three or four hats instead of 20 different hats. Um, That way you can focus on your strengths, uh, and then we can take care of a lot of the busy work or things that... um, you know, somebody else can handle and somebody else can do for you. And so we'll collaborate with you, work with you um, to make sure that we're matching your branding, uh, matching your editing your and your design preferences and all that. Um, and so it's something that we're really, really excited about, something I think that uh, the industry needs in a lot of ways. Um, and because uh, there's so many photographers out there that are just doing everything themselves. And if you're going to grow a business, at some point you're going to have to start hiring other people. And so this will hopefully be a bridge for you to start outsourcing some of that work uh, so that it frees you up to even just really shoot more, which I think we would all love to do. Um, One of the things we could even do if you get to the point is we can do full service to where you do a shoot and then you just send us the files and then we do the editing. We um, post the pictures online to the Musea store for online proofing. We do your album editing. If somebody orders prints, we can do all the fulfillment for you to whatever lab that you want to use so you don't have to handle that. Um, We can blog it. We can tweet it, Facebook it for you. We can do all that stuff to where literally the only thing you have to do is just focus on being an artist and just shooting, and then we can handle the entire post-production process for you if you want. So um, I don't know if that's something you've ever considered, but it'd be something that's um, pretty revolutionary, I think, to your your business. I'm going to be blogging about some of this stuff over the next couple weeks. Um, We've brought on Crystal Mann. She is going to be the director of Musea Outpost. She's amazing, super organized, very detailed, and she's just extremely passionate about helping photographers uh, find their vision and their niche and helping them just be successful. Uh, I'll probably be doing a podcast with her uh, soon, and so we'll we'll get to know her a little more and, and what some more of these details with Musea Outpost is. But if you want to learn more, go to museaoutpost.com. We're doing a beta this fall. So if you want to be one of the uh, limited beta users uh, to help us get this thing up and running uh, for 2014, uh, then just go to museaoutpost.com, send us uh, a note in the contact link, and uh, we'll get back to you with pricing information and all of that. Also, I made an announcement a couple weeks ago. The Musea Gathering is alive, and the tickets are on sale. So... That is going to be February 25th and 26th in New York City. It's two days. Amazing lineup. Uh, one of the big changes we made this year was we're actually doing portfolio critiques. So anybody that comes is going to get their work critiqued by several different people. Uh, we're limiting the seats to 20 people. They're $750 uh, for the two-day event. Um, the people that are teaching are 
uh, John Dolan, Holgerthos, uh, they're teaching and they're also critiquing your work. Susie Kushner, amazing photographer, uh, amazing person. She's also teaching, uh, critiquing work. Liz Banfield, wedding commercial photographer. Again, she's awesome. She's teaching, critiquing your work. Uh, she's flying all the way in from uh, Minnesota, actually. And then um, we also have Christy uh, Drago-Price, which I did a podcast with her recently. She was uh, the photo editor for Bryce Magazine for over 13 years. She's going to be teaching about editing, and she's also going to be critiquing your work. So it's going to be an amazing time. Um, we've got, I think, 17 seats left or something. So uh, if you're interested, go ahead and get your tickets now. Uh, I am expecting this to sell out eventually. So... Um, you can learn more about that at museagathering.com. Um, last announcement real quick is I just had a meeting last week with the Musea store developers. We're going to have some amazing new things coming out this fall. We're going to redesign uh, the client experience even um, and make it extremely smooth and slick um, and even better than what it is now. And so it's something I'm really excited about. And plus, we're going to bring some other new features uh, to the store to help you improve your sales. So... Uh, the last three months we've had record sales um, and so we're just going to continue to grow and evolve uh, we're not satisfied we're with everything is at and so we just want to keep pushing forward uh, and just being the best that um, we can for the industry so enough with the museum announcements um, on to the podcast this episode I had the uh, joy of interviewing Parker uh, Fitzgerald Amazing photographer. He lives in Portland, Oregon. Um, we talk a lot about why he shoots film. Uh, he does shoot some digital, but he really loves film, so we talk about that. Um, we talk about some of his Polaroid work as well. Uh, we talk about his love for Japan, uh, which gets into some in interesting conversation. Uh, and then we also talk a lot about just what inspires him, which I think uh, maybe is not the answer that you would expect it to be. So, anyway, thanks so much for listening. As always, sit back. Um grab some coffee or something, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Parker, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm excited to talk to you. Been a fan of your work for a while, so this is a great treat yeah. for me. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Doing good. Doing good. So, um, well, the first thing I pretty much ask everybody is just to uh, give us a bit of a background on how sure. you got started in photography in the first place. Sure. Uh, and do you want the long answer or the short answer? Um, you know, medium, like five minutes or so. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um, well, uh, I, I mean, I'll start at the beginning, I suppose. I got a, a camera, uh, one Christmas from my parents. It was like a cyber shot Sony thing. Really like, you know, low end kind of deal. Um, back, I don't know. Um, back when st people are still using MySpace, so a while back, and uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I kind of um, use it just as like a uh, for whatever that just that like profile pictures and whatever, and uh, and MySpace really actually was the first thing that sort of got me into taking photos because it was the first time that like I needed. You know, I, I felt compelled to regularly update people on my life photographically. Before that, I was an illustrator and, you know, mainly dealt with, like, drawing. And um, I was on a website called DeviantArt. Mm -hmm. And um, so, um, you know, my main way of communicating through the Internet back then was through, like, a pencil, actually. So um, so I guess uh, the first step was MySpace as lowly as that sounds, but actually even while I was taking photos 
before MySpace, I sort of resented photography because I had a lot of people, a lot of my friends at the time, who had kind of found photography because of MySpace and then started calling themselves photographers. And they all had, like, the little photography pages, and they sold prints, and, you know, some of them were actually kind of, like, you know, making a name for themselves like that, and I just I had no interest in doing that sort of thing. So, um, But, uh, you know, I got to the point where um, I had a friend of mine who was kind of a graphic designer, and uh, he dabbled in photography, and he had some friends who did the, the same, and I got you know, involved with them, and... And so he he had one of his friends sell me, they were upgrading their camera um, from a Rebel to like a 30D or something like that. And uh, so I bought their old Rebel and I paid 500 bucks for it for, um, for the camera and the lens, it was like a 50 millimeter 1.8 and like whatever zoom kit lens came with it. And I thought it was like the most expensive thing ever. And I just, I, was, I couldn't, I couldn't believe how much money it cost, I, you know. And, uh, and I was, I was like, do I have any business spending this kind of money on something for, for my space, you know? Um, but, you know, it was really nice because I was going to Japan back then. And, uh, so I had some, something to kind of like take with me and sort of half, you know, half document my trip. Um, even though I, I didn't even know how to use it, uh, except for like in full auto mode and whatever. So that was like step number two is like into the world of like, I suppose, you know, the very fringes of professional digital photography at the time. And uh, I remember um, there was one day I was on the, uh, you know, at some point I moved to Oregon, or um, I think I was actually living in Washington at the time. And uh, there was a day where we all went to the beach, and I just remember distinctly saying, I'm going to learn manual mode because this computer sucks. And it doesn't <laughs> ever know what I want it to do. It's always picking the wrong shutter speed and aperture. It's just, you know ridiculous so um so i just put it into manual mode um which is a bit tricky on those um rebels because they kind of like they make it annoying for you you know as a reason you know so that you have to get the you know more expensive professional ones and this of course is back in the day when a digital camera just only took you know photos and not video as well too so mm -hmm. um but uh so put it in manual and just started learning like shutter speed aperture iso just by like sight you know i had almost no real idea what they still did back then except for that if you put them in a certain amount of combinations like you get something that looked decent and you can post to facebook because by that point you know myspace had gone the way of dinosaurs so everyone was on facebook and um and yeah so i did that for about a year and then i had a birthday and by this point i was working as a designer actually and um mm -hmm. in, in washington and I was out of college and everything. And uh, so this is still, like, purely hobby land. And uh, my buddy who had gotten me the Rebel had gotten into film. He bought a Hasselblad. And so in my mind, he had, he had a 30D, a Canon 30D and a Hasselblad. And at the time, I thought those were, like, the world's best cameras because <laughs> that's kind of how he pitched them. And I didn't know anything. It was, it's actually hard to imagine a point of being that ignorant about photography because I, do, I mean I just can't imagine not knowing you know I mean I didn't know anything I literally thought the 30D was the best camera in the world and that's why my buddy bought it and the Hasselblad you know it's like super beautiful and so you shot film on Hasselblad or a Holga he also had a Holga which I thought were cool back then yeah and uh, and if you you know so if you, if you want to do Polaroid stuff you shot Hasselblad or like medium format stuff and if you wanted to do anything professional with a digital camera, use a 30D. And so, um, my birth, it was, it was 2009, actually. So that, this is coming up to the current time. 2009, um, early 2009, I had my birthday in March. And I, you know, I got some money from the parents and my grandma and whatever. And I decided to buy myself a 30D, which at the time was old, because I think they were even up to the 50D by that point. And uh, so I was like, well, I, you know, I'm going to 30D and you know, whatever. And everyone kept saying, like, oh, just put your money in lenses. Like, who cares? But I hated, I had this little silver plastic body, and I hated it. So <laughs> uh, I got the 30D because, you know, my buddy had a 30D and the best camera in the world at the time and whatever. And 
And so the first thing I ever did with it, I took a trip to Hawaii with that friend. Um, and, uh, and right before I left, my boss at the time said, you know, like, I think you'd make a good photographer. And I remember just like completely, like almost violently act, uh, reacting against that idea. Like, I just know every, everyone I know is like, want, I want to be photographer. Like, I want to be an illustrator. I want to be a designer. I don't want to be a photographer. Like, everyone's a photographer. It's super easy. It's dumb. And photography is only good for Facebook. I'm never going to be a photographer, ever. I, I remember, like, just distinctly, like, he just in passing made the suggestion, like, maybe you'd make a good photographer. And I just, like, violently reacted against it. And uh, then I went to Hawaii, you know, with this 30D, thought I'd mastered it every every image you know looking back every image was dutch angled to death you know the no horizon line of straight i it was mm-hmm. i was awful it was it was you know vomit inducingly bad and uh but um and that's also the time i discovered hyper or ultra wide angle lenses i think my buddy had like some you know wide angle thing and he let me borrow it and it was just so bad you know i'm shooting at like 16 millimeters or something um but anyway i'm i'm taking it a long way around i hope you don't mind that's good um, yeah go for it <laughs> cool um i don't I, I just realized about halfway through i don't really know how to be brief uh, yeah. but uh anyway so uh get back from that and um you know, this is like when the economy was like really going through its like throes of badness. Mm. And uh, the company I was working at, we thrived off of mostly nonprofit work and um, and local businesses, both of whom just stopped spending money in 2009. And so I got back from that trip and my boss laid everyone off. And just kind of out of necessity, it was like, you know, we all got the, the card um, to hit the road kind of thing. Mm. And so I found myself kind of just like in Portland with no job. And um, so my dad actually owns a, a production company. And he, he had a, pro- a huge project going on at the time. He's like, why don't you fly out to Colorado and I'll give you a job for a couple of weeks. So at least you have like some buffer money or something while you're figuring out what you're going to do. And uh, so I actually ended up like acting as like an extra in something he was filming, but then also in between takes would just take behind the scenes photos of this like little 30D I had. And the producer on the show is like, yeah, you know, your son's got some talent and you should, you should like help him like, um, you know, improve that as a photographer. And uh, they actually happened to be buddies at the time, which really helped out. Um, yeah. I mean, they're still buddies. Like the producer and my dad were really good friends. And so he actually listened to him. So, Right after that, my dad gave me a call. I was back here in Portland. And he said, hey, Canon is coming out with these new cameras that can do video and photos. And they're called the Canon 5D Mark II. And we want to test them out to see if we can incorpor- incorporate them into our production. And so if I bought one, would you try it out for me? And maybe you can, like, try out, you know, you know get better at your photography or whatever, and we can come up with a project. And so I was like, yeah, of course, you know. And so, you know, I, I, the most money I'd ever spent on a camera at the time was like, I think that $500, because I think I got, by that point, I got a 30D for less than $500. Hmm. And uh, so I remember going to the store and laying down like almost three grand on a 5D and just being like, oh my gosh, this is so exorbitant. And <laughs> this is it's just crazy. Like, I was afraid to, like, take it out of, like, the little, like, static wrap they give it. You know, I was just like, this yeah. is the most awesome piece of technology I've ever held in my hand. And um, from that point on, I was pretty much married to that camera. I still have have it as my only digital, my only real digital camera. Um, and I ended up doing a couple projects with my dad through that year that um, that he partially paid me with that camera. So he's got, you know, like a whole, I think he's got like six 5D Mark III's now. And, you know, he had just in it, you know, he he loved it. And, and they actually ended up selling almost all their other camera gear and just totally focusing on, you know, those those uh, Canon DSLRs, like the hybrid mm-hmm. DSLRs that everyone else is doing now. But, um, you know, he, was, he really embraced that and ran with it. So, um, but anyway, long story short, by the end of that year, it was 2009, 
had really grown weary of just digital. It was so boring to me, and, and the projects we had kind of worked on, like, kind of stalled out, and so I found myself sort of, like, directionless at the end of the year, and I got really bored with it. And I had taken over, you know, 100,000 photos, and it was just, you know, and most of which I never even looked at. And uh, somewhere along the line, I had bought this Polaroid camera that... Um, that uh, it just didn't work, and and I was using it as a like kind of a doorstop, pretty much. And uh, <laughs> turned out it just needed a new battery, and I was an idiot and didn't know there was a battery. You know, these old Polaroid lens cameras, the battery, you know, door is kind of hidden unless you know what you're looking for. And so I popped it open. I was like, oh, this thing needs a battery. So found one. It worked, and I was immediately hooked on my this Polaroid camera. It wasn't long before I, I started a project based on, like, a Polaroid a day kind of thing, and that was all mm-hmm. throughout 2010. And I ended up with a Polaroid 195 and then a bunch of different medium-format cameras and 35-millimeter cameras, and I just got really, really into, just obsessively into old cameras, like, figuring out which ones were worth anything, why they, you know, how I could use them in a professional setting today, and I was just really, really into it um, because... Um, you know, slowed me down. All of a sudden, like, you know, I had this rare thing. This was one print. Didn't even have a negative because at the time I didn't know how to make a negative out of out of a land camera photo. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so it's like, you know, you if you lose the the print, you don't have anything left from this shot you've taken. And and uh, that that kind of extreme other end of the spectrum really caught a hold of me. In fact, for like. A year, I just didn't even care about 35 millimeter photography because, you know, it was just so much like digital photography that I just didn't even bother with it. Um, as far as like same aspect ratio, it didn't feel unique to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so got obsessive about Polaroids. Bought you know like so many Polaroid um, boxes of Polaroid film that I just I still have like thousands and thousands of shots that I haven't used yet, and just hoard. I started hoarding it and. Uh, <laughs> became my identity i like didn't go anywhere without like a land camera on my neck and uh and i kind of started becoming more and more of a snob you know if i saw somebody with a polaroid 100 like well auto exposure can't you you know (laughs) scrounge up enough money for a 195 and do it yourself kind of thing yeah and you know at the time it was it was excellent because the 195s were going like 150 bucks like no one cared about them anymore and then um, I bought one, and I actually have, like, three now. And uh, and then Impossible Project started, like, reviving Polaroid film, and um, and then all the prices of the cameras have gone through the roof. I think a 195 in decent shape is, like, six to 800 bucks now. It's just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, yeah, all I can say is that's how I got into film. That's how I... Um, got into photography and uh ever since then it's just it's been kind of like i get bored with the gear i go through new gear sell my old gear and like you know you know it's been a constant learning process since then but you know um that that is a long story about how i kind of found myself <laughs> going from illustration to design to photography now yeah. did you uh study like you know this mm. drawing illustration all that stuff did you st- go to college or anything mm. like that or is that just high school self-taught stuff um i spent two and a half years at an art institute um, art, art institute of colorado as a media arts and animation student and that was the closest um thing they offered the illustration and uh, i hated it and um and uh, so i bailed out of that um i suppose it would be like their equivalent of junior year and uh and went back to school for business at a uni- at the University of Colorado and finished school <clears throat> with a business degree and just basically was um, just kept up with the art stuff on my own. And so um, took a lot of life drawing classes and, and then just all the rest of it was like wrote repetition and trying to emulate people in Japan mostly that I thought, you know, were excellent draftsmen and, and uh, had a couple of favorites that I, I really tried, you know, mimicking. Um, but I was never really terribly proficient at it, like speed-wise. I, I, you know, I wasn't really there professionally. Um, so um, that's actually kind of why I ended up putting it behind me and getting in tor- towards photography is that um, 
after I adopted photography um, in around, you know, 2009, 2010, um, it quickly started kind of becoming the main source of income for me. Um, so by the end of 2010 or beginning of 2011, I wasn't pretty much doing any design or any drawing. It was almost entirely photography at that point. So, mm. so, okay. so now, I mean, you is, there's a lot of things I want to ask you. Um, so you're sure. shooting mostly film now? Mm-hmm. For the most part? Okay. Yeah. I mean, what, is it, have, what is it about film that you like or connect to? I mean, all the old reasons, you know, that everyone says now. Um, mm-hmm. You know, number one, the, the just cameras are so much nicer. And, yeah. and that's, a, you know, for one reason is because, like, for example, there's no... There's no better camera that in, in my mind to hold and use than like a, a, a excuse me, a Leica M3. And it's just so over-engineered and so like overthought and overbuilt um, that it it just is almost perfect, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it doesn't lack or it lacks close focus and some other whatever, you know, doesn't have a meter in it, but you kind of get used to that after a while, but there's just nothing like it. And, uh, there's nothing, especially like in the digital realm. And the closest you can get is like an M9 or an M240. And even compared to an M3, those feel like plastic pieces of garbage. <laughs> and I mean, um, there's a real famous guy, his name is Ken Rockwell. He does a lot of inter, inter- mm-hmm. or, uh, um, reviews on materials and he makes a note that the first thing when you open up the box and you like read the instructions the the owner's manual with an m3 the first thing you see is like you're holding your hands an m3 it's the finest camera that mankind has ever made you know years of scientific and like uh scientific research and artistry and engineering went into it it'll last forever you know if you take care of it kind of thing Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's after they sold you the camera, like which is you know, was a five thousand dollar camera at the time. And uh, it's, they you know they don't have to sell you anymore. They've already sold you, and they're telling you like this thing was meant to last. And if you open up an M nine, the first thing that you come to is like the instructions on how to properly dispose of the camera. <laughs> um, if you have to throw it away, you know it's just like yeah. because of all the batteries and whatever inside. And that's right. that's the mentality, you know. Mm. So. That mentality, that like made to last mentality, is almost completely, utterly absent in the digital world. And that, first mm-hmm. and foremost, is why I just find it enjoyable to shoot any any film camera. Almost just because you get the pleasure of using a proper piece of equipment, um, and the fact that you're actually having to shoot film is almost secondary. But the film itself, I enjoy. Um, you know, for all the like subtle reasons that everyone else always cites, you know, it, it just has a look to it that's hard to describe, but easy to notice, you know, if you know what you're looking for. The grain structure, the warmth, um, you know, all the above reasons. It's just, it's love. you know, it's just lovely compared to any digital camera I've ever used. Even the ones that you know, try and emulate film, it, they don't do a good job. Um, and you can visco that thing all you want. It's just not going to look like a film image, you know. You just it, it's no way, no possible. Yeah, <laughs> I know. But but that right there, I think, it indicates to me like why it's so valuable to actually shoot with film because everyone mm-hmm. in the digital world is trying to gimmick you into buying their cameras by saying like, well, you know, but we have like film emulations on our menus that you can put on your your photos if you want to make it look like. 400h or whatever and then you know visco god bless them you know that's pretty much they're just like trying to emulate film and and they they all everything i've ever seen without without and unless rather you're spending hours on photoshop everything i've seen falls short of the mark and uh and so at, at that point it's just like how much time are you willing to dump into each photo to make it look like what you could just be shooting with film? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm lazy by nature. So I just shoot film. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's I just go to the source and rather than yeah. trying to spend all your time imitating it. So that's, yeah. that's that. And I mean, obviously digital has a lot of practicality to it because you can take a million shots, but, um, you know, 
but on the other hand, that's another reason why I shoot film is because it makes me slow down. It makes me pick shots over others and frame things. And you just take that extra two seconds to actually make sure what you're pushing the button for is worth pushing the button for. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, you know, I'm almost immediately, any digital camera, it doesn't even matter. Like, my brain shifts gears and I just start becoming a trigger-happy weirdo, you know? Yeah. I have to, like, sit there and think about actually, like, settling down and taking a purposeful shot with a digital camera. But, on yeah. that, you know, it's like, you know, driving a manual car versus an automatic. <laughs> a different frame of mind. Yeah, on the same way. So, yeah. Um... I'm curious if you studied painting or anything at all. In, mm. I mean, I don't know. I guess I'll just leave it at that. Have you studied any sort of like painting or history, or do you do that stuff on your own? Um, well, I had a very small amount of art history training um, when I went to school. I, I had a you know just a natural interest in history growing up, so that so that sort of helped. Um, so, I mean, you know, I I kind of uh, had exposure to it a lot as a kid, but um, just just through various travels with my family, et cetera, and just being interested, I was obsessive um, about the Middle Ages and, and, you know, Western civilization, which you know, all the way up through the modern era, so you'll, you'll inevitably run up against painting and um, varying stripes. And I spent a very small amount of time as a painter, or attempting to paint with oils and, and um, Photoshop too, you know, for jobs. Um, but I, you know, I was no Cartier-Bresson or whatever. As far as like, I, be, I was a painter and then gave up painting to take up photography. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I was a comic book artist that gave up comic booking because it was so flipping long and, and tedious. Um, and 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 took up photography because it was, you know, just almost by happenstance and then I fell in love with it, you know? So, yeah. So to answer your question, I have small, uh, small bits of paint background, painting background, but n- nothing yeah. like substantial. Okay. Cause I, you know, I was going through your work, um, this morning, um, kind of, you know, figuring out what I was going to talk to you about and, or ask you. And it seems like a lot of your work really references, you know, painting, um, I mean, I, there's almost even certain painters. I feel like it's pulling, you know, how you're lighting uh, things and stuff like that. You know, yeah. so I didn't know yeah. if that was just a subconscious thing for you, or if that was something it's you're you're influenced by very heavily. You know, um, yeah, no, of course. It, it looks like painting um, from like you know 16th century or something. Growing up as a kid, I I loved Rembrandt and uh, you know just you know, that kind of really moody lighting. And then I got this job with a magazine called Kinfolk. And uh, they kind of wanted to do this shoot where people were all, like, covered in, like, their favorite ingredients or ingredients to their favorite food. And so, uh, and that idea kind of got scrapped at the last second. And uh, it turned into, like, well, let's cover people in, like, um, uh, ingredients to juicing and do a story on juicing. And, uh, and, you know, we had, uh, kind of tried making that work and it looked kind of ridiculous. So mm-hmm. at the end it turned into kind of like this, but well, what happened if we had just like a really strong light source and we only used a couple pieces of like fruit for like whatever juice they represent and just did these very like Renaissance in, you know, kind of influenced portraits and they turned out really well and it was just, you know, really, really fun. And, uh, and so, I mean, at, at the time it was just kind of like a utilitarian thing because I, I hated using strobes cause I didn't really, I wasn't very comfortable with them at the time. So I was using a lot of like really strong natural light sources and it just kind of sort of became like my thing mm-hmm. because they looked, they looked kind of, um, <clears throat> I don't know, whatever to my eyes, they looked beautiful. So. I, I uh, and then after that one um, shoot, I just kind of sort of uh, I don't know, I fell in love with the like the lighting, the chiaroscuro, as, uh, you know, as, as it were. Yeah. So uh, it, it wasn't exactly like a 
necessarily like a super conscious effort, but um, and I, I think I just was naturally drawn to it. So, and then of course that was like augmented by film, um, the film look, which mm-hmm. even brought it one step closer to looking like a painting. So yeah, yeah, the softness there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean that I know that you you're talking about. Um, that, I mean that's definitely one that stuck out and looks exactly like something you would paint. Um, but even some of your stuff, yeah. I feel like that even you have maybe coming up with, um, you know, this kind of florist stuff with overgrowth, uh, yeah. thing or whatever. There, there's, there's also just stuff of that you have with flowers. Um, yeah. That just seem very painterly. Um, yeah. As well. But, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's a product of, uh, I'm dating a, a florist. So there you go. Flowers and <laughs> yeah, they're just like I'm surrounded by them all the time. Yeah, so, and they're you know I developed a like it was, that was another weird thing like I never knew anything about flowers at all. Mm. Like I could barely tell you the difference between a rose and a tulip. You know, two years ago or a year and a half ago, and then this you know last year I was like, oh, flowers is for everything. All flowers all the time, and I'm dating a florist, and let's take photos of people and flowers, you know, yeah. so, um, and it's been one of those things where it's like, how did I, how did I not know, you know, about flowers until right now? It's just mm. weird. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Weird how like little passions just fall into your lap right there. Yeah. Know, weird points in life. I mean, I think, uh, there's, there's some good photo history of, you know, photographers with flowers and still life. So it's, um, it's not a subject matter that's been, you know, breached obviously before, but, um, it's a good one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's nothing like terribly um, groundbreakingly new about it, but I still, I just think it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, I, my, my passion is photo- or portrait photography just because I love people. I love taking pictures of people. I feel like, you know, having a human element to anything, um, you know, will immediately imbue the photo with some kind of worth of, of one stripe or another. Um, and that, and that, you know, the, the best photos in history, perhaps with the exception of Ansel Adams, were all photos that have human elements to them. So, yeah. But then flowers, which are like kind of the base, basic, most general conception of like beauty that that exists, and combine the two, and I don't know, it's just mm-hmm. something that never really gets old for me. Have you looked? Or haven't yet. The- yeah. Have you looked at? Um- I think Imogene Cunningham did a lot with flowers. Mm. I don't know if you know of her, I've looked at her work. No. Um, I mean, she's like 1930s-ish, uh. 40s, like uh. way, you know, uh, kind of a, ma- she's got, she's yeah. one of the masters, but she did a lot of black and white yeah. work with um, calla lilies and stuff. But oh, right. she, a lot of her stuff was very very feminine. I mean, her flowers are, you know, a lot about kind of perspective of a woman, maybe. And there's probably some sexual nature to some of the pictures. Uh, mm. They're very sensual, uh, but they're mm. also just just flat out gorgeous prints and images. So awesome. they're very. You may want to check her out. They're very like kind of poetic and just you know yeah. just per- simple but perfect at the same time. Um, yeah, that, that would probably be right up my alley. I almost exclusively these days just like I mean all my favorite photographers are like older master mm-hmm. type um you know black and white type um photographers I, yeah I prefer to like go back to the people that have already stood the test of time you know yeah good kudos so. um I asked uh, if anybody had any questions for you and somebody wanted to know well kind of two questions uh, I mean, just where do you get your mm-hmm. inspiration from? So we kind of touched on that a little bit. But if there's any like anybody specific uh, that you really are inspired from, um, and then also what what do you hope your work uh, will convey, or like what are you trying to say? I guess with your work, right? Uh, what was the first one? Uh, inspiration, like maybe where do you get your inspiration oh. from? Wow, well, um, like a ten minute answer, but. <laughs> Top, top yeah, three. Um, well, <laughs> it's actually like 
surprisingly difficult one for me to answer because, um, or at least I should say that's probably a difficult one for me to answer, like, um, usefully, just because, like, um, I can almost sum the entire thing up with, like, um, Tumblr, you know? Mm. <laughs> and, but that's, that's a really boring answer, so. Right. Um, but, like, uh, as far as inspiration is concerned, it's just, you know, Pitch on the spot. I see something. <laughs> yeah, give me a give me a second to just formulate an answer that doesn't sound ridiculous here. <laughs> um, I draw from a, like a, a lot of different things, and I for for one is like reading. Uh, mm. I'm constantly trying to be reading things, um, usually older, you know, classic type things. I'm going through. Uh, two books right now um, and both I've read before one is by C.S. Lewis and it's called um, That Hideous Strength which is uh, kind of like the third in his uh, quote unquote space trilogy mm. and then the, um, and then uh, the other is uh, Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky and uh, for example um, one of the portraits that I just shot for this overgrowth thing I shot with a, a buddy of mine um, named Joe, and I had just gotten done reading this part of of, um, of Crime and Punishment, where he, uh, you know, without spoiling too much, he goes in and like, murders the old woman. You know, mm-hmm. like uh, there's like um, he, the, the main character ends up murdering this old pawnbroker lady, <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, so it's just like. You know, squalid, you know, St. Petersburg kind of like apartment in the 1800s. And, you know, you just kind of imagine there's like a really shabby, like wallpaper, like probably, a, you know, some sort of, I don't know, I don't know if the time period's right, but like an old William Morris, like floral wallpaper on the wall or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, the next day I went and shot this guy, uh, or, you know, shot photos of my friend Joe. And so I was like, oh, I want an old, I want, I want to see, he has like this huge beard. He kind of looks like Rasputin a little bit. And, uh, I just really wanted to kind of convey something that I felt like, you know, kind of represented an old Russian apartment. And so that kind of was the, the basis by which like, I planned out the shoot and found some, you know, my girlfriend in like a, the perfect like floral print sheet that we hung up and, whatever, you know, so, um, but it just comes in bits like that, mm-hmm. and I don't know what, like, in, I suppose I don't know, like, what, how I would codify, like, my inspiration in general, Yeah. Um, but it, it, you know, is derived from a myriad of small things, and, uh, you know, it's a combination of what am I trying to shoot, um, what have I been reading lately? What have I been seeing on Tumblr? And, and, uh, what have I, you know, what have I always wanted to try doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's probably not a very satisfactory answer. There's no, there's nothing I can say that's going to be like, this is the key to, you know, being the best photographer ever. Right. <laughs> and this is where, you know, this yeah. is my inspiration. Yeah. No, I yeah. think that's, so, um, that's, I mean, I, I think that's a great answer because, the nature of, I feel like the nature of creativity is the people that are most creative. I think that they're really successful when they take a lot of different inputs from a lot of different areas of life. Um, and then they find a way to combine all that into like a single thing, you know? So you, you take a little something from literature, you take a little something from like a movie, you take a little something from some girl you saw in a cafe somewhere and you, you know, and then you piece all that together to like into a shoot and then all of a sudden you have your own unique yeah. thing and then you kind of figure out this pattern of things that you're attracted to yeah. over and over again. And then all of a sudden you kind of develop right. a style that's yours, you know? Right. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I hope at one point to get to the, the you know, like uh, the, the point where, where I'm like Brisson, where I'm like, if we go, Yes, my inspiration is a love affair with a geometry. It is like a sort of passion, a love affair, uh-huh. you know, whatever. You know, you like, and at some point, I can expound upon it. Like, I've, I'm some, I'm like unlocking, like strand by strand, the deeper mysteries of human uh, 
human experience by like composing my shots like X. But, yeah. you know, really what it stems from is a few things. One is a love of history, mm. a love of literature, mm. a love of um, other photographers, and a love of portraiture and people. Mm. And, uh, and then, you know, and then, of course, there's the what am I trying to do? What's, what's the assignment wrapped up? And what's the like, coolest way we can kind of, or most beautiful, I suppose, would be the most beautiful way, given our, you know, set amount of resources, we can convey something. And since I'm almost always, always shooting like a like a prepared scene, you know, Prasan was uh, like a little thief. He'd run around and just shoot real life. Mm-hmm. And I almost never just do street photography yeah. like that. And I think I'm a really, um, I'm a really uh, amateur photojournalist, actually. Um, in that way, um, I've had a couple experiences where I've, I've been able to do that in Japan and India. Um, where I've just kind of like stalked around, but it's, you know, it's really hard for me anyways to be a photojournalist because I'm six foot four <laughs> and I usually have like three cameras on me yeah. and you know, it's like really easy to spot me. So I'm not subtle right. either. I don't have that gift. Yeah. Chuchunk. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although, I mean, I do have the Leicas. Yes. Sure. But for me, it's like shutter speed is the last of my worries. Right. Or not shutter speed, shutter, uh, yeah, shutter noise. noise. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Looking at your work, um, I get—I don't know. I want to kind of talk about maybe what I see in your work, and you can either say cool or not cool. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, but I really see that there is kind of this reference to maybe like a slower pace of life, um, mm-hmm. a little bit like nostalgia. This longing a, a bit maybe for maybe how things used to be um yeah. but also at the same time maybe like a slight bit of romance or something in there mm-hmm. does that make sense mm-hmm. uh would you agree or disagree with that yeah actually um so i've always been torn my my whole life between like the you know when i was a kid it was like nights versus space <laughs> you know, I, at one point I wanted to be like a knight, yeah. but at the same time I wanted to be an astronaut. Mm. And I always had those two things fighting in me. And I, you know, my brothers and I would grow up and we'd play knights. We have our we had our Legos, right? There are our castle Legos and our space Legos. And one week I really would play with the space Legos, and the next <laughs> week I'd play with the castle Legos. And it was really important that the Space Legos and the Castle Legos never mixed mm-hmm. because obviously that was ridiculous. Yeah, there was no astronauts when there were castles, right? Right. So, um, but that kind of defines, you know, um, even when I played as a kid, like I was really into video games as a kid, um, and it was like Legend of Zelda versus Mega Man. You know, some weeks I was, mm-hmm. I felt like swinging a sword around. Some weeks I felt like shooting a blaster or whatever. You know, and yeah. Star Wars versus Lord of the Rings. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but ultimately, I think as an adult, um, really that, that, that former, or that latter, rather, uh, no, 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 excuse me, the former won out against the latter in so much as that I, I really ended up um, becoming engrossed with like medieval literature, and I was a history minor for a while. Oh. I was actually trying to dual major in business and history, and it was just one of those things where I wanted to get out of school more than I wanted to be a history major. And uh, so I, I just made it a minor. And, uh, you know, I was writing a story for a while based on, like, medieval uh, Europe and, and the Crusader era in the 1100s, etc. And, and I really just, you know, my heart, I think, belongs in the past in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, in photography, that manifests itself in shooting film, shooting old cameras. You know, my M3 was made in 1957. Um, and... Uh, whatever you know it, it's like the the most the oldest camera that i found actually can be practically used today mm-hmm. and that's um you know that's why i use it and so that really does influence my work i i you know i read about google wanting to be able to download human brains or upload human brains to the internet in 40 years mm-hmm. and uh and like in 90 years give us like synthetic bodies so we never die and i just cringe and all that like it sounds awful it sounds like a horror <laughs> novel or something I know. and and uh terminator it's kind of come true man 
Yeah, seriously. There actually is a technology company called Skynet somewhere yeah. in, I think, Australia. It's just like you're just asking for trouble. I know somebody yeah. somewhere is probably thinking they're really clever, but, yeah. um, you know, it's like naming your company Adolf Hitler and Co. or something, yeah. you know, or whatever. I, I don't know. So, I mean, there's a part of me that really hates technology, um, mm. but I always, uh, you know, and I... I do long for that quieter time. I do long, you know, to live in the days of, of Kappa and Brisson and, and Eisenstadt, et cetera, where it's like, you know, you, the expectations on a photographer, um, were, were very, very different. Um, you know, they probably were still like stressful yeah. in a different way, but you know, you know, you, getting the photos of them the next week instead of the next day, even the same day, you know, wasn't considered, insane you know mm. i mean Prasan went to india for a number of years and you know didn't see his any of his contact sheets the entire time mm. and uh you know i just read a story about a guy sorry i'm digressing yeah. a second um i can't remember the guy I mean, he's a really famous photographer and i feel silly for not being able to remember his name but he had a really uh iconic photo that came out of the japanese theater in world war ii of a skull on a tank and uh and it was just kind of like one of the first photos they printed in Life magazine, or maybe it was Time, I think it was Life, of, of like deaths mm. and dead soldiers, dead Americans in, in, uh, in, in uh, American news, or American media. And uh, it was just kind of like, you know, the Pacific theater was just so much more brutal in a lot of ways than the European theater because it was something that, you know, uh, the, the West just hadn't really... You know, we had a, a a cultural kinship with the Germans, but we, that we didn't with the Japanese. Uh, that and just made it that much that that markation of violence just so much clearer. And he was explaining um, getting this shot of the the skull on the tank, and um, and how you know how it'd be basically, you know, on your way over to your assignment on some godforsaken island wherever they were fighting at the time. Um, you stop off in Hawaii and you pick up, you know, your film and then like a, a box of condoms and you go over there and you shoot your film and then you drop it into a con uh, condom with like your, uh, like your notes on like what's on the roll and then you tie it off and it's like pray that the jungle, like the, the, the humidity didn't get to it and then you'd send it off to, um, you know, on the next ship going out, you'd send your film back to DC and then they'd develop it and some sensor would look at it and then it would finally make its way to New York and then life would, you know, put it in a magazine or something. Mm. And it'd be months and months and months before you ever, ever saw anything. Um, and if your camera was broken, like you, you could be shooting for weeks and not even know it until somebody finally got a telegraph back to you saying like camera broken, fix and fix your shutter or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, and so it's just like a completely different world, you know. Mm -hmm. And I long for that in some some ways, um, but on the other hand, I have a Facebook and I have an iPad and an iPhone and blah blah blah, and so yeah. I'm totally wrapped up into it in other ways. So yeah, that, that dichotomy always um, is going to exist, I think, for me. And and uh, yeah. So I hope that answers kind of your your question, but yeah. at the very base, the, the heart of it, I do long for like a return to a more sane period where you know everything was slowing, everything slowed down. People thought about what they were doing a lot more in all aspects of life. Mm. You know, people didn't you know ravage the world around them as much as they did, etc. I mean, all all that. Yeah. But you know, there's the practicality of the fact that. It ain't gonna happen barring a cataclysmic event, so you don't want that either. So I don't know. <laughs> Catch twenty two. Yeah, bit. yeah, the zombie apocalypse or something, and then something, something like yeah. that might slow it down. Yeah. Um, yep. All right. So it seems like you have this thing with Japan that yeah. you really like. Um, so I'm just curious what it is that you like about Japan. Let me tell you a quick story. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it kind of leads into it. So when I was a kid, um, about five years old, my parents would take us out to go um, have family night, which was code word for pizza, and, and, and then they'd take us to a video game arcade, and we'd spend five bucks each mm -hmm. in quarters, which was a ton of money, you know, 20 quarters. Mm -hmm. And um, and so 
Um, but one night, <laughs> that was every Friday, and one Friday, uh, there was a gang fight. This is Southern California, mm. where I lived at the time. There was a gang fight literally out in front of this arcade, and a couple guys got stabbed, and I don't, I don't know if they're dead or, or whatever, but um, I just remember, like, everyone freaking out. My dad, like, grabbing, a, um, grabbing me, my mom grabbing my brother, and rushing us out, and I just remember kind of everything in the a flash and a bunch of blood and, and then the next Friday, you know, but my little, little brain was like, you know, I wasn't scared. It was just like, Oh, this is crazy. The next Friday, my dad came home and instead of family, I, he just brought a Nintendo home. Mm. And, uh, so that was, that was it. <laughs> um, and, the, you know, and, you know, gradually they, my parents figured out that, you know, video games was a good way to distract us and, I got really into into them, and it wasn't very long until I figured out that they all came from Japan. And so that was really like the early days when I was a small kid. That was like the first thing that kind of like really made me interested in Japan. Ironically, maybe not ironically, but interestingly, or maybe not interestingly. And uh, you know, all growing up, I just fell more and more in love with everything about the culture. I, you know, I had a strong historical bent, so World War II history, you know, interests me, and then, of course, samurai and all that, mm-hmm. you know, the Tokugawa shogunate and all this stuff. Um, and, uh, and, of course, you know, the video game thing was kind of a catalyst all throughout my teenagers, too, and anime and Pokemon and Dragon Ball Z and all that stuff, and, and I really was fell, fell prey to the... Um, the Japanese invasion of like the early or late nineties, early two thousands. So, um, and that's just kind of stuck with me. And, you know, it's something I thought I had a sacrifice when I became a photographer because I thought, um, illustration was going to be my road to Japan. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I, uh, when I abandoned drawing, I thought I was also kind of turning my back on ever, on the idea of a dream of like ever living or working in, in Tokyo and, and, um, you know, say la vie, life takes people in weird, weird, um, directions. You gotta make a living kind of thing. But just randomly last November, I got a, a job working for a pretty sizable Japanese magazine. And that just like, it was like a door just got thrown open. Mm. And I've worked for like 10 different Japanese publications in the last nine months, maybe more. And, um, and then, uh, you know, got invited to come back and show my photos at a couple of, um, couple of places. So, uh, it's just, you know, something I thought I'd put behind me as just a, you know, a relic of my childhood is all of a sudden come flying back into my life. And so, you know, I'm trying to do everything I can to build that relationship back up, um, you know, just cause it's, it's been something that I've always been interested in and, you know, even trying to uh, teach myself Japanese, you can do a lot of things with a mm. <laughs> with a uh, an iPhone. So. Yeah, and it's really impressive when you go over there and you say "Kamoganegi o Shotokuru," and they go, "Ha ha, that's so hilarious! That's so obscure! I can't believe you know that phrase." <laughs> um, and so, like that "Kamoganegi o Shotokuru" literally means the duck came with onions on its back, which is their kind of way of saying. Um, Everything worked out better than I, or it was, it's like saying it was fated to go well. Mm. You know, and you can say kamonegi, duck onions, and uh, so really old school Japanese phrase. And I had a friend of mine the first time I went over this year to work. You know, so teach me some obscure Japanese phrases that I can just like throw down to kind of stun stun whoever I'm in a meeting with or whatever. And mm. that was that was the that was what they taught me. So yeah. Anyhow, yeah. Do you um. Oh. I mean, I've never been to J- Japan, so it's hard for me to... Yeah. I can't talk about it really at all if, on any authority, but, I mean, it seems like a country that has that dichotomy of maybe what stuff you, you're... Either that we all, I guess, deal with, but it's in a different way in terms of they have these very old traditions. There's this, old, this kind mm-hmm. of older culture, but it's also a very innovative Com- uh, country mm-hmm. that has a lot of technology mm-hmm. and things that is really innovating the world in a lot of ways, but they also have mm-hmm. stuff that's like, st- you know, stuff they're pulling from a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago, right? You know, uh, that's still uh, they're important to them. Which you know, America doesn't have right. that type of a rich history 
Um, oh, yeah. So do, are you for just our, attracted to we, that, we, that, the dichotomy there that way? Well, you know, um, I would say America has that history to draw from, but we, but we like actually actively um, turned our backs on it. Most people are absolutely ignorant of his, of their like historical um, roots. Mm. And uh, the Japanese, you know, we're, you know, so so it's not because we don't have it because we obviously come from oh, somewhere, yeah. but it's, it's more that we actively have turned away from it um, mm. or forgotten it or whatever, you know, just rejected it. Maybe not actively, just through indifference, but um, culturally, I'm speaking, of course. Um, mm-hmm. The Japanese. I was actually a little side story. I, I'm. My, I've been to Japan twice this year so far. This will be my third time this year. And the last time I went, I ended up getting a job working for Toyota, um, shooting um, a guy for a book they're doing on, like, the future of car, like, the future of uh, travel and mm. uh, transportation. And uh, <clears throat> I wound up having to go to China to shoot this portrait of this guy um, who's French, and it's a long story that... I wound up in Shanghai, but um, he was basically saying like China or not China. Japan has you know, is very insulation or isolationist even in the modern age, and uh, a lot of the reasons they've got, been been so innovative in like the world, for example, in robotics, is because they haven't they have they've had to be that way because they've shut out so much of the rest of the world. Um, you know, even today it's in certain um, circumstances in Japan, most circumstances, I'd say, in Japan, like, it's really hard for a foreigner to get a, a uh, you know, a job instead of a Japanese person. You know, they just have a, mm-hmm. a view of, the, you know, themselves. Um, I mean, and that's not to say it negatively either. They're just very culturally aware in a way that most countries aren't, mm-hmm. uh, most modern countries aren't, at least. And uh, so he was basically making the point that their isolationism has driven them to innovate in like robotics because whereas like in the US for example we outsource our, our production to other companies or countries like China or, or we bring in migrants like from Mexico to like uh, help us out like Japan doesn't do any of that and they they just have robots you know they automate and and so you have this weird weird culture where it's like extremely modern on one side but extremely old-fashioned on another mm-hmm. and uh you know you have this new generation of japanese that are about my age and maybe a little younger who are kind of right right uh, you know have come up like really disconnected for the first time from mm-hmm. the traditional way of doing it but it still pervades the culture um and it is really uh, and i'll tell you the, the answer to your question um the, the, it does attract me strongly, and there's a there's a documentary called uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. It's really popular, and uh, it's just just a documentary on this Japanese uh, sushi chef, mm-hmm. and they have a, a word for for um, craftsmen over there called shokunin. Uh, shokunin, it's like a philosophy. Um, uh, well, it's a, it literally just means craftsman, I think, but uh, it's like a, the the art of the craftsman, you know, like a um, and, uh, and it's a kind of an old Japanese, um, mentality where, you know, even if you're doing something mundane, you know, that the world would consider mundane, like say, like preparing food or something or a farmer or, you know, leather working, whatever, you could still apply yourself to mastering it and you should, and if you're not going to, you shouldn't do it, you know? Mm. And, uh, I feel like that's something that, especially in America we've lost where most people hate their jobs and, mm-hmm. um, it, it, you know, even if they don't, they probably don't really care about mastering it necessarily unless their job is like the passion as, as well. But even me with photography, I have to like keep in mind all the time, bring your best game, even if it's not like a, a situation that's going to make or break your reputation. You just should always be working constantly every day, towards that mastery of that thing else you shouldn't be doing it because you're wasting everybody's time mm-hmm. and you're also defrauding people by asking money for it you know yeah yeah um, i mean we live in a culture of it's it's really well, in america i think of like it's, it's good enough yeah um, well striving yeah, for excellence is balance. striving for excellence is rare it seems at least here in america yeah yeah and I, you know, 
to 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 contradict myself or whatever to parse my words, <laughs> but um, you know, I Jiro to be just to be honest, Jiro in that documentary is is uh, I, I, you know he sacrifices everything for his sushi craft, mm. and, including like damaging his personal. I mean, I would say damaging. I don't know. I don't know. You'd have to ask his sons, I guess. But it looks like he damages his personal relationship with his wife and his kids. Mm. You know, just by being almost completely absent, um, you know, uh, devoted. So you can uh, definitely go the the opposite way and be too uh, obsessed with your work. There's a yeah balance that needs to be struck with all things, but um, yeah, yeah. For anyway, sure. I, I, in general, I feel like that that desire to master something um, attracts me um, to the Japanese mindset. Yeah, There's, you know. That's a long answer for us. No, that's good. Question. That's great. Well, yeah, that's good. I mean, uh, I really don't have anything else. Um, I appreciate you for, you know, taking the time to chat with me. I know you're a busy guy and you got a lot going on right now, so uh, it's really an honor to uh, talk with you. Uh, likewise. Uh, thanks for, for thinking about me. Uh, I, I feel like I'm being inducted into good company here. Um <laughs> And so I appreciate appreciate you uh, taking the time to listen to me prattle on for a couple of yeah. minutes. I don't know, what is that, like an hour, an hour. or something? Yeah. No. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. It was really good. It was really good. So I appreciate it. Cool.